Isaiah 44, verses 6 to 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to please bless our hearing of your word, not only the reading of the word, but the proclamation of it, that you would grant us all soft hearts and active alert minds, that you would open up our spiritual eyes and ears to see and to hear wonderful things in your law and your teaching. You are perfectly wise and we know that Jesus is our good shepherd. And so we ask Jesus, the good shepherd, will you please wisely shepherd our souls, knowing what each one needs among us, knowing exactly what our souls need for health, whether it's faith for those of us who don't yet know you, whether it's coming to Christ to begin with, or whether it's ongoing sanctification to purify our lives, to strengthen us, to encourage us, and to lift up our weary souls. Whatever we need, we pray you would do your mighty work through us by your word. Give your spirit to us to hear and to me to proclaim these things with faithfulness, clarity, and power. All to the end that you'd be glorified in our midst through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Consider with me the emotion of fear. Now, we're all aware of a danger that we could call emotionalism. And that is letting emotions be the primary drivers of our thinking and our acting. We see, sadly, examples of this everywhere, even among Christians, even among maybe ourselves, our own lives. It's certainly not healthy to be driven by emotion. But we also face the opposite danger of overreacting to emotionalism. And there can be a response that says, well, then emotions don't matter. They're to be ignored. They're to be suppressed. They're to be overpowered by brute force. Well, the Bible paints a picture between these two extremes. Our feelings matter because they're a part of how God made us. In his image, they reflect something about the affections that he himself experiences in his own perfect divine nature. However, it's true that sin makes our emotions unreliable. And so our emotions are often pulling us in unhealthy and untrue directions. But one healthy use of emotions is that they can serve as excellent gauges of what's going on in our hearts. What are we actually thinking? What are we actually believing and trusting and desiring? Often emotions will be the surest indicator of what's happening. And fear is an unpleasant emotion. It's also common. 
Every single one of us experienced fear at some point over the last week. Maybe even today. Maybe you were afraid of being late to church. Maybe you're afraid of looking like, I don't want to be that guy that comes in late and then everyone will think of me less or whatever. And it's unhealthy to be ruled by fears. But on the other hand, it's also unhealthy to completely suppress them, to completely pretend that they're not there. Rather, the Bible would have us to respond to our fears by probing them and asking a revealing question. Why am I afraid? Why am I afraid? What do I think might happen? What do I think I or others might experience as a result of what happens? What must be done to prevent bad outcomes? Or what must be done to secure good outcomes? And am I able to secure good outcomes? Or is it totally in the hands of another? And if so, whose hands is it in? Every time we're afraid, our heart is unconsciously assuming answers to all of these questions. And it's this consideration of fear that brings us to our text, the message the Lord has for us, His people. Now, ever since we began this little series on Isaiah this summer, back in chapter 42, verse 10, the Lord has been building a big argument in three, basically has three prongs, three ingredients. The first one is, even though... Israel will be exiled because of its sin. So he's been saying that will happen. Secondly, he will powerfully redeem them. And thirdly, in so doing, he'll prove his supremacy over all things. So even though Israel has sinned and will go into exile, he will redeem them. And in redeeming them, he'll prove his greatness. Now, some of our texts have more focused on the sin that's leading them into exile. Others have focused more on redemption, how God will not only return his people geographically to the land, but also he'll go deeper and solve the sin problem that has led them to their plight. That third component about God's supremacy has been less prominent up to this point. It has appeared, but now it moves to the fore. And in these last two texts, what we'll look at today and Lord willing next week, that'll be the main thing. What does God show himself in this redemption? How does it reflect on Yahweh, both that he sends his people into exile and that he rescues them out? So today's text faces that question head on. And then next week, we'll deal with the corresponding matter of idols, the false gods who compete with the Lord for worship. But to understand today's text and how kind of it all hangs together, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the people of Judah who have just heard Isaiah prophesy in chapter 39 that they will face the covenant curse of exile to Babylon. They have failed God's covenant and they're getting kicked out. Questions swirl around in their minds. How will this happen? What will be the long-term outcomes? And maybe most importantly, where do we turn for safety? And it's from that context that the Lord declares for us this bold message this morning. And kids, if you're listening, if on your way home, driving home, your parents ask you, what was the sermon about? This is what you'll tell them. The Lord is the first and the last. The Lord is the first and the last. Now, we're going to look through our passage and what we'll see as we kind of unpack the statement is we're going to see one clarification of what it means that the Lord is the first and the last. And five implications. 
And by implication, what I mean is, if our main statement is true, the Lord is the first and the last, then these five other facts are true as well, by consequence. And actually, what we'll see is that the points advance in a certain progression, like Russian nesting dolls. They kind of unfold from each other. They begin high level and abstract, and then they progressively get more and more concrete. So whether you're more of a philosopher who loves to think abstract thoughts, you're more of a practical doer, what we'll see is that these are all very interconnected. So let's begin with a clarification of this statement, the Lord is the first and the last. The clarification is, it's not just in time, but in existence. Not just in time, but in existence. Now, God's claim to being the first and the last comes right there in verse 6. He says, I am the first and I am the last. And when we hear these words, I suspect that most of us have a picture pop into our head. Or more like a chart. And this chart is a timeline. On the left is the past, and on the right is the future. And with God saying that he's the first, what he's saying is that the timeline goes infinitely to the left. And with God saying he's the last, what that means is the timeline goes infinitely to the right. So for you mathy types, what that means is we'd put a little arrow on the end of each of those lines to show it goes on infinitely. And then by implication, what that means is that everything else that exists and everything else that happens lies somewhere on a certain limited segment of that line. So creation, fall, all the millennia of ancient history, Noah, Abraham, David, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, all the way down to us and then the people who will be after us, that's all sitting on that line somewhere. It all occupies a little swath of that infinite timeline. But at some point it all stops and then God just keeps going, never ending into the future. If that's the picture that pops into your head when you hear the Lord saying he's the first and the last, here's what you need to do. Delete that. That's not what he's saying. He's not simply talking about being the first in time and he'll be the last in time. He's saying something much bigger than that. And evidence that he's not talking about time and this idea of an infinite timeline that God is on, consider what he says later in Isaiah. In 57.15 he says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He inhabits eternity. Eternity. He's not on the timeline at all. He is above it. He is high and lifted up. He occupies a different realm of existence, one that transcends all of creation, even time itself. So he works in history, and as we'll see, he steers history, but he doesn't exist in history. So what he means by saying that he's the first and last is something much bigger than simply time. He's saying that his existence surrounds, transcends, and enfolds everything else. In Romans 11.36, I believe Paul makes another valiant attempt to express what is ultimately an inexpressible reality about God. He says, from him and through him and to him are all things. He is the origin of all that exists. He is the means of all that happens. And He is the purpose and final end of everything. So to say that He's the first part means that God didn't come from anywhere. He doesn't depend on anyone. Rather, everything came from God and continually depends on God. 
And then to say that He's the last means that everything, once created and set into motion, isn't just running along on its own independent course into who knows what final outcome. No, He is there at the end. He's the result. He's the terminus and destination of all of it. Now, language fails us. Our limited creaturely minds fail us to really grasp what this means. But what God is claiming here, at the very least, is that he's very, very big. He is very great. Everything comes from him. Everything does what he determines, and everything is because of and for him. In our scripture reading, uh, just a few moments ago from Revelation 1, we heard the risen and exalted Christ proclaiming this about himself to John the author. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. That note of fear not really anticipates where this message is going as well. This is the exact claim Jesus, as God, is making about himself. I am the first and the last. Now, this may all sound abstract and vague. Why does it matter that God is the first and the last? Well, I promise that it will get more practical. But as we continue, we'll see that this truth about God has many implications. And again, we'll look at five of them. So let's hear them. The first implication, first thing that's true as a consequence, is that no one else belongs in his category. No one else belongs in his category. And as is so typical in this part of Isaiah, before the message comes this loaded up description of the speaker. uh, Two lines worth of who God is who's speaking. It says, thus says the Lord Yahweh, that's his covenant name, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. That's a long introduction full of truth about the Lord. He calls himself Yahweh and then at the end, Yahweh of hosts. Now that's a common title for God in the prophets and chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah are packed with this Lord of hosts. And it usually shows up in a way that it's conveying the Lord's power and supremacy. But beyond that, what exactly it's pointing to, it's hard to be precise. Hosts mean crowds. But it's not entirely clear what the hosts are. Are they angel armies, God's heavenly entourage? Well, that's possible. I believe it's even bigger than that that the teeming inhabitants of all the realms of creation, the angels in the heavens, the men and beasts on earth, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. He's saying, I am the Lord and master of all of these hosts that inhabit all the realms. Whether or not that specifically is what he means by Lord of hosts, he does make that point explicit in verse 6 when he says, immediately after calling himself the first and the last, he sort of defines what he means by that or the significance of that by saying, Besides me, there is no God. That's what I mean by saying that I'm the first and the last. And to say that there's no other God doesn't mean that there aren't other beings that claim to be God. And it doesn't even mean that there aren't other beings who could, in the limited sense, be called gods. The Hebrew word for God is intriguingly flexible. It's used sometimes for mighty men. It's used sometimes for angels, and it's used for the pagan pantheon, the false gods. But it's clear in this context that by saying that there's no other God, what he's saying is that there is no one else in his category. There's no one else on his plane of existence. He is transcendent. He's wholly other. 
Now, there are countless distinctions between different kinds of beings that exist, and they matter. Your child and your dog should be considered as very different kinds of creatures. I hope you think of them that way. But even still, in our mental picture of all the beings that exist, the blackest, boldest, thickest line should be the one that separates the creatures from the creator. The most fundamental distinction of all distinctions is this. There is God and there's not God. And everything that's not God, God made. Now, there was an unusual number of great basketball players in the 90s NBA who never won any titles. Charles Barkley, Reggie Miller, Patrick Ewing, and others. Why not? What was going on? Why didn't they get any championships? Well, there was a big black hole in Chicago sucking up all of the championships. And it was called the Bulls, or specifically the Michael Jordan Bulls. I didn't win them all in the 90s, but they won six in eight years. Part of what it means to win all the titles means that, and this is going to sound really profound, there aren't other title winners. So there's this whole generation of great players that never won any championships because Jordan was hogging them all. And in a sense, in a greater sense, this is what the Lord is claiming about himself. He's saying, if I'm the first and the last, and there isn't anyone firster, and there isn't anyone laster, and if I'm the Lord of hosts, then there aren't any hosts left over for anyone else to be Lord of in the way that I am. So in verse 7, he makes this challenge at the beginning of verse 7. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Will anyone claim to be like him? in the same class as he is. And he's challenging, let such a person come up and present his case. This is a high prophetic drama, and it's rhetorical. It's like a courtroom scene. He's not actually calling out any real challengers. There's really no one who can do this. The point, remember too, he's talking to his own people, Israel in the original context, and he's saying this to us, the church now. The point is to drill home the fact that nobody can step forward and make that case. The silence of response is the point. It's like in a wedding when the officiant says, and we, when we do weddings, we don't really say this as much anymore, but historically they would often say, does anyone have a reason why these two should not be wed? And we've all shuddered at the ghastly thought of somebody actually stepping forward and trying to halt the union. Why was that ever put into the wedding liturgy? It's a powerful rhetorical point for all who are present. See? No takers. We all agree, don't we? That this marriage is a good thing and that we all affirm it. It's the same thing God's doing to Israel. Nobody can step up and take this challenge. But as I said, these abstract truths about God are going to keep ratcheting up in practical payoff. So let's talk about the second implication of him being the first and the last. The second implication is Other agents act, but don't determine. Other agents act, but don't determine. Excuse me. Consider again Israel's position. They've been told that another nation, Babylon, will conquer and exile them. And the next section in Isaiah, which he's kind of ramping up for, starting in 44 verse 28, he's going to mention Cyrus, the coming Persian king who will deliver them. 
Meanwhile, as ancient Near Eastern people that they were, you can be assured that they were tempted to see history as a battleground of the gods. And we moderns can be very quick to dismiss concerns about other gods. We tend to drift toward the opposite ditch, which is secular materialism, that only the physical reality is all that exists. And so we need to stop and be careful about what we mean when we say there are no gods besides the Lord. What is God saying here? In, in 1 Corinthians 8.5, Paul is on his way to making the point that there is only one God. But he concedes that there are so-called gods aplenty. He says, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So he kind of throws that out there as a concession. Even though that's the case, there are many so-called gods out there. Truly, there is only one God. Well, what does he mean? Is he talking about fictitious beings? Probably not. Why were the Egyptian sorcerers able to replicate God's plagues in limited ways? Ever wondered that? Why, when they threw down their staffs, were some of their staffs able to turn into snakes, even though Aaron's staff turned snake ate them up? Still, I can't turn a staff into a snake. Why was the witch of Endor able to conjure up Samuel's spirit for a consultation with Saul? Have you ever wondered that? Well, Deuteronomy 32.17 says that Israel sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods they had never known. To new gods that had come recently. The Bible teaches that the false gods aren't necessarily purely fictitious beings. They are demons posing as gods, as competitors to the Lord. And it seems that they may hold sway in different parts of the world, over different nations of men. We won't turn there, but if you look at Deuteronomy 32.8, it seems like the Lord is maybe saying that he apportioned different angelic uh, beings to different nations, and it seems that some of these were probably demons. Because it was taken as a matter of course among the ancients that different gods occupied different territories and ruled over different peoples. So when they would go to war, they saw warfare as a shadow of a bigger battle going on in the heavens between the competing gods of the two peoples. So, given that that's the case, can you imagine how Israel would be thinking about exile? We're about to be hauled off into another nation's territory where we will be removed from Yahweh. He's the territorial God here, they might be thinking. But will be removed and subject to the rule of those other more powerful Babylonian gods. Over there, they'll be in charge. So here's the Lord's explosive message. Sure, there are angels. Sure, there are demons. Sure, there are gods in a certain sense, supernatural beings who participate in history. Sure, men also act in the material realm, building and ruling and conquering. Babylon will conquer you. Persia will save you. But the exile isn't up to Babylon or Babylon's gods. And in the same way, your redemption will not be up to men or gods either. Others act, but Yahweh alone determines. Others act, but Yahweh alone determines. Others make decisions, but Yahweh alone shapes history. Everything else is swimming in the stream. God engineered the channel. Now, how do you and I actually think the universe runs? 
we probably don't envision wars between competing territorial gods. Rather, we probably have a mechanistic view of the universe. We view the universe as a big natural machine. That if you give certain inputs into it, it'll do its thing and it'll spit out certain outputs. And that's what determines what happens. And so the things that matter to us are not at the whims of the gods, but uh, they're subject to the machine of nature. Consider everything that matters to you. Every realm, especially where we face fears about unknown future events, our provision, our health, our relationships, our society, our political order, the well-being of those we love. And on the one hand, it is true that means lead to ends. There are things ordered by cause and effect that's truly baked into the universe. We can call it angels, we can call it physics, we can call it sociology. In reality, I think it's all of those things. But because we tend to view the the universe as a machine, we can be devastated when the means start falling apart. When have you experienced frightening events or faced down frightening possibilities and it's exposed the fact that you don't actually see the Lord as the first and the last? How am I going to eat or keep up my mortgage if I lose my job? Take that means away and everything will fall apart. How am I going to have a happy future with my loved ones if I get that horrible diagnosis? How will my kids be okay if I can't get them to obey me and follow my advice? How is our nation going to last if certain social trends continue or certain leaders maintain power? And all of those things matter, but none of them are ultimate. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. The machine is not running the universe. The Lord of hosts is. Whether darkness or light, whether good or evil, whether prosperity or scarcity, whether sickness or health, he doesn't do evil, but he rules sovereignly over all. And so if that's true, let's move on and consider the future. This is our third implication. Third implication. He shapes history toward redemption. Now, there's a bit that's left unsaid in the text, but we can easily fill in the gaps from the context. In the second half of verse 7, God mentions the fact that he established Israel a long time ago. He says, since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. And similarly, verse 8, he says, have I not told you from of old and declared it? Well, what? What has he declared? What is going to happen that he's told them beforehand? Well, in the context of this larger argument in Isaiah, it must be redemption. He is predicting complete redemption. Return from exile, blotting out their transgressions. 43.25, he promised that. Pouring out his spirit to renew their bodies and souls. We saw that in 44 verse 3. It's this big package deal of redemption. And that's what he's going to expand on in chapter 45, talking about, again, Cyrus and how he's going to use Cyrus to bring them back. And that's why, in verse 6, he introduced himself as their Redeemer. So what he's saying in verse 7 is that he has dealt with them for a long time. They have a long track record with him. And they have seen in the past, many times, that he has both predicted and worked redemption. He said he'd get them out of Egypt. And he got them out of Egypt. 
with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He said he would bring them into Canaan, the promised land, and he brought them in and cleared out their enemies. He said he would take care of the Assyrians more recently in Isaiah 37 when they were knocking on the door. And what did God do? He took care of them. He wiped them out all by himself. As God's ancient people with his long track record, Israel is in prime position to function as his witnesses, to hear him predict deliverance and to know that he will accomplish it. They know he's good for it. So now he's predicting yet again, I will redeem you. And in view of what he has been proclaiming about his singularity and his uniqueness, the point is this, don't you think I can save you as I've promised? You aren't shaping history. The gods aren't shaping history. The people who sin against you, the people you depend on, the people you love, the people you hate, they're not shaping history. The Lord is shaping history. And, so important, He's shaping it toward the redemption of His beloved people. We sang in that hymn, Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with His love He befriend thee. That is the powerful payoff. Not only that he's almighty, but that he's working all things toward redemption. Now, all the stuff that I mentioned earlier, our provision, our health, our relationships, our society, our loved ones, God is shaping history in regard to all these things toward his redeeming end. Now, I'm not saying, the Bible does not teach universalism. I'm not saying that everyone is going to be saved. The Bible doesn't say that. But what the Bible does say is that if you are in Christ, everything must work for your good. Everything will be redemptive for you. And zooming all the way out, you are on the road. We together, beloved, are on the road to eternal glory shared with Jesus who bought it for us on the cross. And you'll have setbacks and you'll have sorrows and you'll have mud and you'll have flat tires and you'll have fatigue, but you will get there. He is leading all things toward this end, redemption for you. In our spot in history where we stand, Christ has won us redemption as, as Hebrews 1, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1 7 calls the forgiveness of our sins, which he's purchased with his blood on the cross. We have begun to enjoy this redemption, but we await its consummation. We're free from sin and death. We're free from slavery and fear and Satan but not yet fully enjoying our freedom. So Ephesians 4.30 tells us that God has sealed us by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And this points ahead to a future day to come when the redemption that's been purchased and the redemption that's been begun will be redemption fully realized, redemption fully enjoyed. Now, a few weeks ago in our scripture reading, we read Revelation 22. And Revelation 21 and 22 I think you could do a lot worse than to read those two chapters frequently because they show us where this river ends. It it empties out into this indescribable ocean of blessing. There's resurrection. There's glory. There's fellowship with God. There's seeing His face and worshiping Him by the light of His own glory forever and having our tears wiped away and having our sin and sorrow gone. But we have doubts. That's why fear keeps nipping at us, doesn't it? So we need to be armed with the logic that God applies to Israel and to us here. We have a whole Bible 
full of God's record of redemption for us. He has done this many times. And this is our book. This is our history. In Christ, we're the seed of Abraham. This is our book of our redeeming God and how many times he said he would do it and he's done it. Story after story of redemption promised, redemption accomplished. So given that the Lord, the beginning and the end, is thus ruling history for our good, where does that leave us today? The fourth implication is that he is the only rock to trust. He is the only rock to trust. Verse 8 has this rhetorical question, is there a God besides me? It's another way of saying what he said earlier, besides me there is no God. The answer is no. But then he says the same thing again in slightly different terms at the very end. There is no rock. I know not any. Now a rock is a common image used in Old Testament poetry for God in Deuteronomy 32.4. It conveys his unbending justice and his immovable righteousness. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And later on in the same chapter, Deuteronomy 32, 37, it conveys that God is a place of refuge. It says, then he will say, Israel will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge? Sorry, the they is Israel. Israel has taken refuge in other rocks and they will prove to fail. But that idea of a rock as a place to take refuge uh, gets continued in Psalm 18 too. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Don't think of a pebble. Don't think of a cobble. Don't think of a boulder. Think of an enormous monolith, a mountainside with caves and crevices in which one can hide oneself to escape from storms and enemies. It's a hiding place. This is the image. The Lord is a rock because he's firm He's strong, he's dependable, he's immovable, he's just, and he is utterly worthy of his people's trust and eminently able to give us refuge. He is the only rock. He's the only one worthy of trust. Now, this is no great leap from the implications we've already seen. If he is the first and the last, and if he's on his own transcendent plane of existence, and if there's no one like him, and he has all the power, and he alone is shaping history by his sovereign hand, of course, we can trust him. We can trust him alone. There's no one else we can trust the way that we trust the Lord. Then the final clause of verse 8 is very interesting, where he says, I know not any. That's kind of an odd way to forcefully deny something, isn't it? Kind of ending with an asterisk, a question mark. Isn't God omniscient and all-knowing? What does he mean? I don't know. Maybe there is another. I don't know. What's God saying here? It's not uncertain. What he's doing is he's staking his own deity entirely on this point. If there is another rock, if there is another God, then I don't know about him which means I'm not God at all. For the Lord to be the sort of God that he claims to be, there can be only one. There is only room for one at the top of this mountain. And all that he's been saying about himself pushes us to evaluate our lives and ask the question, where else are we hiding? Where else are we turning? 
There are plenty of counterfeit rocks. They're styrofoam movie studio rocks. They promise refuge, but then they blow away in the wind. And next week in verses 9 to 20, we will see the Lord launching his powerful attack against false gods. It's a point that naturally flows from what he's saying about himself here. This picture of God as a rock is is simple, but it's so rich with meaning. And, And just like two weeks ago, I urged us to, kind of as a homework assignment, meditate long on the picture from... 44.3 of the spirit, like streams of water poured out on dry land. It's such a fruitful image for the work of the Holy Spirit. I would say the same thing with this picture of God as a rock. This is something to stew on. This is something to contemplate. Go for walks and just think about this picture. Because what hope, what assurance, what joy is to be found in the refuge he gives. The Hebrews takes up similar language to describe Jesus who is the particular object of Godward trust. In Hebrews 6.18, the author describes Christians as we who have fled for refuge. Unless there be any mistake about where we fled, it's to Jesus who has ascended to the Father after atoning for our sins. And there, the, the author says, he sits as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That's where we fled for refuge, Christian. In Jesus, we have a rock, we have a refuge, an anchor for our soul. And through him, our place of refuge is fellowship with the triune God. This morning, if you don't trust in Jesus Christ, if you're not believing in him, you are adrift. You are without a rock. You are without refuge. You are subject to the whims of history, people, forces that are beyond your control. It's a terrifying thought. If you're outside of Christ, there is no redemption for you. Every good thing you've heard from this sermon is for other people. It's not yours. If you're outside of Christ, you are a slave to your sin. You are adrift in the turbulent river of history. And the only thing you can be assured about in the future is that ruin will come for you in God's final day of judgment. So will you come to Jesus Christ this morning? Will you come trusting Him? Will you come finding in Him all the benefits of God's redeeming promises? The umbrella of His sovereign care for you as a father. Will you come to Jesus and have that today? Today and forever. Come out of the storm. Come into His shelter. But for all of us, there's one final implication to consider. And it's intimately related to our trust. And that is a fifth implication. There is nothing left to fear. There's nothing left to fear. The beginning of verse 8 contains the only direct commands in this passage. And it's doubled for emphasis. He says, fear not, nor be afraid. This has been a common refrain if you've been walking with us through this part of Isaiah. Way back in chapter 40, verse 9, at the beginning of this section, he told Jerusalem, fear not. In 41.10, fear not. In 41, 13, and 14, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, I am the one who helps you. Our text a few weeks ago, 43, verses 1 to 7, it was the only command he gave, and he gave it twice in verses 1 and 5. Fear not. Last time in 44, 1 to 5, in verse 1 it appears, and again, it's one of only two commands. The other command is listen, and then he says, fear not, O Jacob. If there is one solid takeaway that God wants his people to draw from this whole argument and all his promises in this section, it is that we should not fear. 
And this is why I brought up fear earlier to begin with. Fear indicates trust. Fear indicates how we think the universe works. Now, sometimes it is appropriate to be afraid. When we're in true physical danger, there is an absolutely appropriate fear response. God's not talking about that. He's talking about living in fear. He's talking about stewing in it, mentally walking around and around in fearful circles over and over. This is surely a failure to understand that the Lord is the first and the last. And what God does in our text is incredibly liberating. When, when we bring God down to the level of his creatures, we have everything to fear. Because everything is up for grabs. It's just a battle of the gods or a battle of who gets to control the levers of the machine. Which is why politics, for instance, has come to take such a sense of ultimacy in our culture. Who's going to control the machine? But if we'll exalt him as the first and the last, the one who's high and lifted up over all powers, we are completely free from fear. See, the only, it's simple. The only one worth fearing is Yahweh, and he's our rock. So that's it. There's nothing left to fear. And as I said earlier, fear often indicates what's going on in our hearts. Emotions aren't our rulers, but they are super helpful indicators. What is going on under the hood? What am I trusting? What am I believing? What am I truly desiring? And every time we fear something that could happen or even something that we know will happen in the future, we ought to ask, Oh my soul, what forces actually control the outcome? On what does this depend? And yes, there are other factors, but the first and the last answer is always God, my Redeemer. God alone. The Lord is the first and the last. There is no one like Him. He alone rules history, and He's so wonderfully moving it toward redemption and glory for His beloved and chosen ones. We have no reason to fear. We have every reason to trust him, come whatever may. The 16th century Heidelberg Catechism begins with this famous question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Now, a catechism is a teaching tool of biblical truth. And those who wrote this catechism thought, this is the first thing we want to teach people. What is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Listen, listen. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact... All things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ by His Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. End quote. If belonging to God in Christ can't give us comfort from our fears and can't make our hearts sore, I defy you to find anything that will. The Lord of hosts is the first and the last, and he is working everything for our redemption in Christ. He says to us today, trust me. And he says to us, don't be afraid. Let's pray.
Our God, we confess there is no rock like you. There is no one who has the power to dispel fears. No one who rules as you do. And there is no one whose intentions for us are as good as yours. Father, we pray that you would stimulate our minds to consider and to chew and meditate on this question. To ponder anew what you, the Almighty, can do if with your love you befriend us because you have done so in Christ. May we be people who interrogate our fears and take them to you. May we live boldly and may we live joyfully, even as we sorrow and even as there are real tears, but knowing your sovereign rule over all things, may we rest easy knowing that everything depends on our loving Father in heaven. And if there's any here who don't yet know Christ, we pray that the picture you've given us from your word of how good it is to be under your ruling care would compel and attract people to come to Jesus in faith, even now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.